Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to episode 28 of the Equip Project podcast. Jim, it's pretty crazy that we're on episode 28, isn't it? Yeah, it struck me this morning that we're nearing the finishing line for this first season of the Equip podcast. Only three more episodes to go before we reach the end of term. Yeah, and the plan is that the podcast is going to take a short break over the summer, and we plan to come back with season two towards the beginning of the next university year. Uh, but in the meantime, we're definitely we're definitely going to be keeping the Instagram ticking over with content throughout the summer. And we'd massively love you guys to be giving us ideas for season two. We're really keen that it's shaped by you, our listeners. So please do get in touch with us over Instagram. Uh, and hopefully, when we restart, Ollie will be allowed to meet in the same physical space, yeah. which means you can you can fix the sound quality coming out of my microphone. Yeah, hundred percent, Jim. Remote podcasting has been a bit of a mission and I feel like it's aged you a few years. It has. If I survive this pandemic, I intend to take all the audio equipment that currently resides in my kitchen and hurl it violently into Strangford Loch. <laughs> in the first season of Equip, Jim, uh, we've had conversations about a whole load of different topics, cultural controversies, theological concepts and some pastoral issues. And many of the topics have been suggested by our listeners, and it's been really great to engage with those. But our topic today is something that you've been keen to cover as we draw to the end of this season. We're going to talk about the pastoral issue of living with things in our lives that seem to be unfixable. Why do you want to talk about that topic specifically? I was taught a nursery rhyme in my childhood that went like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, if the pictures in my storybook were accurate, Humpty Dumpty was an anthropomorphic egg which fell off a wall and smashed into pieces. Uh, So it's perhaps unsurprising that those who attempted to repair Humpty Dumpty were unsuccessful. But the thing is, that little poem taught people that there are some things in life that are unfixable. Yeah, it's actually it's actually quite a distressing nursery rhyme, to be honest, Jim. Like, I'm sure there's quite a few kids traumatised by it. (laughs) it's extremely odd i mean particularly the repair strategy i mean it was never going to work all the king's men well that might be a sensible group to fix uh, a broken egg but horses really (laughs) human beings equipped as we are with opposable thumbs would struggle to complete such a delicate operation but horses are really very unsuited for the egg repair business i'm pretty sure they made the whole situation worse (laughs) yeah i am trying to imagine that right now and yeah i can't can't really see a horse having huge success um, with that. But Jim, this is is a delicate pastoral issue. Um, we are going to try and address something that has huge ramifications, huge impact, a huge impact on the lives of many people. Um, I, I know you have some experience in encountering individuals in, in this position. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Some years ago, a lady in her mid-40s came from another country to Northern Ireland for a holiday. And one Sunday she went on impulse to a church about 40 miles outside of Belfast. And on that Sunday morning, I happened to be the Bible teacher. And so after the service, she asked to speak with me. Uh, She and her husband were childless. In earlier years, they had spent a lot of money and time on various forms of IVF. But the problem had been unfixable. Every time I see a woman pushing a pram, every time a girl turns around and I see that she's pregnant, how can I get over this, she asked me. And you know, behind that jumble of half-sentences lay years of pain and disappointment. Life had forced her to confront a huge disappointment, one that would never go away. She had to live with the unfixable. 
Another example comes from a man I, I once met in business life. I only met him on a small number of occasions. But one evening we shared a meal together and he told me about his life. When he started out in business, he had been married with a couple of young children. But intimacy had broken down within his marriage and he had begun an illicit affair with a female colleague in work. And after some time, his wife discovered his adultery and his marriage was dissolved with real bitterness. And his children had grown up without any real contact with their father. And that sense of loss weighed down on my colleague's soul. The damage had been done. The years had been lost and nothing would bring them back. Yeah, I think that gives a, a sense. Both those stories, Jim, give a real sense of of how challenging um, the unfixable can be. And what you're talking about is problems that um, go on potentially even for years and years and they're a reality that we have to live with and there's no quick fix to them. Another example might be a disease like Alzheimer's. But there are loads of other problems in our lives that can be present for years or even decades. And the big risk is that we allow these problems to dominate us to the point that we end up in in a place of despair. And I guess the question is, Jim, for us, how can we say anything useful about such a sensitive topic? Well, rule 101 here is to be biblical. Uh, I want to suggest three biblical principles that apply to problems in our lives that seem to be unfixable. So if you don't mind, Ollie, uh, if you have a Bible there, um, I'm going to ask you to read three brief passages from Scripture for us. Um, the first is found in Genesis chapter 29, uh, verses 30 to 35. But before you read them, let, let me set the scene. We're going to break into an ancient story about love, but a love that is messy and complicated. The man in the story is called Jacob. He fell hopelessly in love with a girl called Rachel. Rachel was a stunningly beautiful young woman. And she was the daughter of a conniving, unprincipled man called Laban. Laban uh, made a vague promise that Jacob could marry Rachel. Uh, but at the last minute, he plays a trick on Jacob and marries him off to Rachel's older sister, who is called Leah. Uh, now, Jacob eventually does marry Rachel, and so he ends up in a polygamous marriage to both sisters. Now, Leah is a character we should focus on. Leah did not have an easy life. Scripture tells us that she was physically unattractive when compared to her younger sister. But more significantly, Leah was not loved, either by her father or by her husband. The daughter her father did not want was now the wife her husband did not want. Leah was the girl nobody wanted. So that's the context. Now, if you've managed to find the passage, Ollie, I'd be grateful if you read those verses out for us. Yeah, 100%. I'll, I'll read them now. So verse 30 of Genesis 29 says, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. It's a heartrending story. Um, perhaps because she had this huge lonely void in her heart, Leah sets out to win Jacob's love. 
She was trying to find happiness and an identity through Jacob's elusive love. If I have babies and sons, then my husband will come to love me. And finally, my unhappy life will be fixed. But Leah's plan didn't work. You can hear the eagerness in her voice, can't you, as each son arrives. Surely Jacob will love me now. Now at last my husband will cleave to me. But here's the thing. She was married to a man who did not love her. And that problem was unfixable. Now the writer of Genesis paints a very honest picture of Leah. She is no unrealistic heroine. There were times when she succumbed to jealousy and bitter rivalry toward her younger sister. And that bitterness spilled into the next generation as it so often does. So that Leah's sons hated Rachel's son Joseph so much that they sold him into slavery. So Leah is not faultless here. But in the midst of all the chaotic mess, Leah makes one profoundly good choice. She doesn't allow her desire to be loved by her husband to become an ultimate thing. Um, I loved those words that you read when she greets the arrival of her fourth son, Judah. You see, with the first three, Reuben, Simeon and Levi, she had focused entirely on her understandable desire to be loved by Jacob. But that problem was unfixable. So when Judah is born, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. I think there's such a defiance in that claim. Biblical scholars point out she doesn't call God by the generic term Elohim, but by the more personal covenantal term Yahweh. She had found in the Lord her ultimate sense of worth. Yeah, it's such a a sad story. I, I was feeling quite emotional even reading it there, Jim. And it's impossible not to feel a huge amount of sympathy. And it's wonderful to see how eventually um, she focuses her mind on the Lord. What is the the kind of key principle we should draw from the story? I think the principle is this. Leah refused to allow the unfixable problem in her life to define her. So yes, of course, the situation would always be like a bruise at the back of her mind. But she did not allow the thing to completely define her sense of identity, her understanding of who she was. There was more to Leah than being an unloved wife. So perhaps for someone listening to me now and your understanding of yourself, your sense of identity is dominated by a huge disappointment in life or a huge difficulty in your past. And as the years have passed, all hope of overcoming that disappointment has evaporated. And now you can't think of yourself without your disappointment taking centre stage. Well, I'm not going to say anything trite or glib here. Instead, I would ask you to listen to Leah, hear the defiance in her voice as that unloved woman says, this time I will praise the Lord. Something very difficult has happened in your life. That is a reality that cannot be denied. But it need not define who you are. There is more to you than your disappointment. That's really helpful stuff there, Jim. The first principle you've outlined for dealing with a problem that's unfixable in our lives is not to let that problem define us. There's more to us than our disappointment or our regret. And that's that's really helpful and, and really important. It stops something from dominating us um, and dominating our self-understanding to the point that we lose all perspective on life. But it's still hard, I'd, I'd say, to, to see why God would allow an unfixable problem to remain in our lives. Why does God actually allow that? Yeah, we still haven't seen any logical reason why God would allow such a thing. And so to help us understand that question, I'd be grateful if you got your Bible out again, Ollie, and and turn to 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 7 to 10. These are really famous uh, verses. So 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Yeah, I've got that passage open here, Jim. Um, Verse 7 
says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Yeah, so I'm sure all of us have heard that expression, a thorn in the flesh. And the origin of that phrase is found in the passage of scripture you have just read. The Greek word Paul uses here can either mean a stake which pegged him to the ground, or a splinter which constantly irritated him. And Paul has employed the word in both senses. It conveys the notion of something sharp and painful that sticks deeply into the flesh and cannot be extracted. And its effect is to cripple Paul's enjoyment of life and to drain his energies. And we're not sure what Paul's thorn in the flesh actually was. And obviously people have had have people have speculated about that. Some people say it might have been a, a chronic illness. Some people think it might have been uh, those opposed to his ministry. But the Holy Spirit and... Um, the Holy Spirit through scripture has chosen to keep this particular affliction anonymous. And I think that's a, that's a really good thing. And actually it allows um, the people of God to identify with the principles it's teaching us. Uh, And the first thing you notice about this is that the problem is unfixable. Paul follows the pattern of the Lord himself in the garden of Gethsemane. He prays three times for the problem to be fixed. Uh, That's actually a very good pattern uh, for Christians to follow. But the answer from heaven is no. And some Christians might say, well, maybe Paul just didn't have enough faith. Um, If he'd claimed healing in Jesus' name, then he would have been healed. It was a a question of faith, some people might say. (laughs) Well, uh, I don't think they would say that if Paul was in the room. (laughs) Uh, But uh, in in one of our recent episodes, I can't remember which one, we talked about end times or eschatology, to use the technical term. And I vaguely remember we talked about the kingdom of God being built in phases. So in the here and now, God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. The will of God is done in the hearts of believers as it's done in heaven. But we must live as wheat among weeds, to use an analogy uh, first used by the Lord Jesus. Now, when Christ returns and the kingdom of God becomes manifest on earth, then all the blessings of that millennial reign can flow into our lives. We can know healing as a right. But at this stage in history... We can never claim healing as a right. God promises to redeem our bodies, not necessarily to heal them. Exactly. And we're not saying that God can't heal today. Of course he can. But your point, Jim, is that at this stage of history, we can't claim healing as a right. We don't have a right to be healed in that sense. That's right. And people who do make that claim are guilty of what is called an over-realized eschatology. And by that mouthful of words, Uh, it's meant that they are pulling forward the blessings of the manifest kingdom, the blessings of the age to come, and they're pulling them into this present evil age. So Paul is not revealing a lack of faith here. Christian faith is faith in a person, not faith in an outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And, And the Apostle Paul receives this response to his prayer from God. And the words of that response are also very famous. Um, the words, my grace is sufficient for you. And uh, you see those words, you know, on, on text hung um, in many Christian homes. 
uh, my grace is sufficient for you. And, and they're, they're beautiful words, but also challenging words as, as you're about to outline. Yeah, they, they are. But I actually think that verse is the toughest verse in all scripture. Um, my late wife kept a little calendar of daily scripture readings on her bedside table. Uh, and on the 17th of May 2004, as I've told you before, uh, she was diagnosed with an acute form of leukemia. And on the next day, the 18th of May, she woke up and reached for the calendar. And the verse for that day read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And at, at first sight, those two phrases, they don't sit that comfortably together because what do grace and power have in common? Well, remember that God's grace is much more than a kind-hearted and forgiving attitude. Paul sees his entire ministry as a life strengthened and empowered by the grace of God. So God's grace is this uh, powerful, strengthening reality within the believer's life every day. Uh, Commentators point out that the Lord's words here in the Greek are in the perfect tense, which means that Paul is still hearing the words as he writes them. So maybe the best way to explain that is to imagine that every morning when Paul woke up and he felt the stabbing pain of the thorn in his consciousness, he heard the voice of God. Good morning, Paul. Today, my grace will be sufficient for you. And whenever Paul heard those words, he knew they came from someone who knew all about power being perfected through weakness. The one who says, my grace is sufficient for you, knows all about thorns in the flesh. A crown of thorns sat on his head when he hung on the cross. Yeah, Paul's entire argument in 2 Corinthians is that we can only participate in God's power by following the way of the cross. And I think this is where uh, many Christians go wrong. The grace and power of God interlock with our lives at the point of our mortal weakness. So sometimes God allows a thorn in the flesh to remain in our lives. Why? Because it is that very thorn which pins us to the grace of Christ. Yes, it renders us weak. But it is only people in that state who can then experience the power of grace flowing into their lives. Now, there are certain voices within Christendom that tell lies about the power of God. The so-called health and wealth gospel preaches about a divine power that reinforces our self-confidence. It ignores the way of the cross and tries to bring the triumphant promises about the eternal state into this fallen world. Listen to those false teachers. You will hear no talk about thorns in the flesh uh, or prayers for healing being answered with a no. But if you attend to these scriptures, you'll begin to understand that the way of the cross is the only way for God to transform you. Now, I know that is tough. Each morning, as you wake up and the dull ache of an unfixable problem asserts itself in your mind, well, remember that God is using this unfixable problem to bring about a weight of eternal glory. And if you choose to use this terrible difficulty to pin you to the grace of Christ, then the transforming power of his grace will build patience and steadfastness and lots of other beautiful moral qualities into your life. And those qualities will remain long after the sorrow of this fallen world has passed away. Thanks, Jim. These are are wonderfully helpful thoughts for for people um, facing an unfixable problem. We've, cons- we've considered two principles so far in this conversation. Some believers must struggle with problems that cannot be fixed this side of eternity, at least for many years to come. That's a reality that cannot be denied. But the first principle was that it need not define who you are. There is more to you than your disappointment or your suffering. 
And secondly, we learn that a thorn in the flesh can pin us to the grace of Christ, allowing his transforming power to interlock with our mortal weakness and build qualities within us that will shine for all eternity. Now, to understand the third principle, again, if you have your Bible, Ollie, I'd be grateful if you could read out a little, a few verses from John chapter 21. So John 21, 18 to 23. And we're breaking into the middle of the story of Peter's restoration, you know, when he and the Lord take that walk along the beach uh, in John 21. Yeah, I absolutely love this chapter, Jim. And verse 18 of John 21 says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Thanks. Now, there's, there's one tiny little detail in that story that fascinates me. Um, the Lord's just told Peter the devastating news that he was to face the agonizing death of crucifixion. Uh, and we sometimes forget what a terrible burden that must have been for Peter to have carried for the rest of his life. But notice uh, from the passage you read, Peter looks over his shoulder, right? And he sees the Apostle John following them at a distance. What about him? Peter asks. Now, Peter misunderstands the Lord's reply, and he walks away from that conversation, believing that John's destiny was to avoid suffering and death and go straight to heaven. And that little moment uh, is what I want to think about. It's It's the moment when Peter glances over his shoulder and asks the question, what about him? I think that's one of the toughest things about suffering, Jim, because sometimes we're tempted to look over our shoulder at people who have a much easier time than we seem to be having. And we get this sense that life just isn't fair. Last week, I read a book. It's a very short book by the Christian philosopher uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, and it's called Lament for a Son. Uh, Walter Storff lost, lost his son Eric when he was just 25 years old in a climbing accident. And the book is full of raw emotion. In fact, I almost couldn't read it at times. And he describes how he could look at a group of young adults and calculate that Eric would have been their age if he had lived. He looked at other fathers talking and laughing with their sons. And all the while there was this huge gaping void in his own heart. Now the loss of a child is an unfixable problem this side of eternity. And asking someone who's lost a child if they have got over their loss is like asking a horse to to repair an egg. So it's so tempting to look over your shoulder at fellow believers and wish that your life was more like theirs. But notice how tough Jesus is with Peter. Just you follow me is his answer. God has designed a unique training ground for each of us. We each have our own road to walk. And so we walk it with our eyes fixed on Jesus, not looking over our shoulder at others. When we say that we trust God, we don't just trust in his love or his power. We have to trust in his wisdom. I mean, I I don't quite know why I've ended up as a childless widower. But I trust that God knows knows what he is doing with my life. So I don't look over my shoulder at others. 
The great hope of Christianity, Jim, is that the problems we're talking about are only temporary. So in that sense, I guess we could say there are no unfixable problems ultimately. One day we will have glorified bodies. The, the Bible promises that. And in fact, the only thing that we're going to take into the next life is going to be our character. And that's the thing that's formed in these struggles that we endure in life. But we can look forward to this day um, when no relationship is going to get broken, when our bodies and our minds are free from the problems of this life. That's true. But it's important that we also hold out a more immediate hope, if you like. I mean, a lot of young adults listening to us may struggle with mental issues that seem to be unfixable. And maybe in a small number of cases that may be true, this side of eternity. Like the patriarch Jacob, you may be called to walk with a limp for the rest of your days on this earth. But I'm amazed at the number of middle-aged Christians who struggled with mental health issues in their 20s, but who now enjoy robust mental health. So just because a problem exists in our minds for a number of years doesn't mean that it will be there to the day when we go home to heaven. But your point about hope is, is of course, the most important one. Uh, in its glorious eternal light, there are no unfixable problems. There are only light and momentary troubles, to use Paul's most daring words. The best is yet to be. So be of good courage. As the old hymn puts it, they are as hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. Sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Thanks, Jim. I've really enjoyed this episode. It's been a, a great blessing to me. I'm just going to outline those three principles as we close that should govern how we deal with a long-running, uh, seemingly unfixable problem in our lives. The first principle was don't let the problem define you. There is more to you than this problem. The second principle was a thorn in the flesh can be the very thing that pins you to the grace of Christ, and it is the power of grace that transforms you. And finally, don't look over your shoulder. Just walk the path you've been called to walk. Don't just trust in God's love, but also trust in his wisdom. Thank you all for listening to episode 28. Um, it's been really great having you guys with us on this journey. And as I mentioned, as we look towards season two, please do get in touch and share your thoughts on how that season should look. We'd really love to hear from you via Instagram or via our email address, theequipproject at gmail.com. 